Has China embarked on neo-colonial land grabs that aim to subordinate African farmers to their own needs? Hi everyone, I'm Mika. And I'm Amadeus. Do the break, do the break. And we are the co-hosts of The Crane, News on China Africa, brought to you by the Dongsheng Collective. China's expanding footprint is not without controversy. Critics are suspicious of what they see as a neo-colonial land grab, accusing China of exploiting the continent's resources. Welcome to our first episode ever. As you've just heard, one of the critiques we hear and read in Western and African media is that China is involved in a so-called neo-colonial land grab in Africa and somehow aims to subordinate African farming to the needs of its own growing consumer markets for agricultural goods and commodities. Today, as we celebrate the International Peasants' Day, we're going to discuss what's been happening in the agricultural sector on our continent and what China has got to do with it. Now, Mika, tell me, what is International Peasants' Day? So basically, International Peasants' Day, which is celebrated on the 17th of April, um, it in fact remembers a very tragic day in peasant history or modern peasant history, because in 1996, the landless workers movement in Brazil, the MST, um, in the process of trying to occupy unproductive land, land that should rightfully be in the hands of peasants who want to farm it, want to live on it, want to sustain not only themselves, but their society. They basically experienced a massacre where the military police of the state of Pará um, came in and basically shot. And I think it was around close to 30 people lost their lives in that moment. And since then, the different international like groups in um, Latin America basically came together to try to create awareness of this issue and try to think about what it means for peasants to resist, what it means today for peasants to live, you know, lives with dignity. That's a really, really, really deep history. And I think it's important to be aware of International Peasants' Day and to celebrate it, especially in the African context. Talking about the African context. Let's talk a little bit more about what is really at stake when we talk about agriculture in Africa. So 650 to 670 million people in Africa, so that's roughly half the population of our continent, face food insecurity according to statistics. Of that number, more than 250 million people are considered to be severely food insecure. This means that hundreds of millions of Africans do not know where their next meal is going to come from. So agriculture is key to fixing that. Now, just for context, again, smallholder farmers produce about 85% of sub-Saharan Africa's agricultural output. That is massive. We are massively reliant on peasant agriculture, on peasant farmers in rural areas to feed us. 75% of these peasant farmers are preparing the land using only hand tools. This is back-breaking labor. I don't know about you, Mika. I did agriculture science in school, and it was when it was time to go out and learn how to plant maize, how to uh, dig up a field for maize. That was tough. That was really, really tough. I don't know. Did you ever do anything like that? So actually, I just visited my mom. She lives in a rural area on the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe, an area called Mashipanda in Manikaland province. And I mean, she 
tills her own land, tills her own soil. And part of the sadness of the situation, though, is that despite the amount of labor you put in, there's certain guarantees that if you're a rural farmer, a smallholder, a subsistence farmer can't guarantee, like they've had no rains in the last season. And so um, maize yields are not looking promising this year. And it's because there is a lack of uh, a well-developed industry that can coordinate the sources of water um, to the right places. And water is a huge, huge issue for all of us in Africa. Um, as those of us from the continent know, no, not all of Africa is just one desert. The Sahara doesn't yet take in the entire continent, thank goodness. But water is an issue. When you talk about the issue of water, you speak to my soul because only 5% of the total cultivated land in Africa is actually under irrigation. This is insane. We have a huge continent and 5% of the land we use to grow our food is under irrigation, which means we, we depend on rain-fed agriculture, which in this day and age, after the, the agricultural revolution, the so-called green revolution in the 1950s, I think that is just crazy. I can just speak about my own experience. In Zambia, we sit on about approximately 80% of the entire Southern Africa's water reserves. The entire sub-region's water, 80% of that is in Zambia. But we ex almost exclusively depend on rain-fed agriculture. And, you know, the rains will do as they will do, um, as you mentioned uh, with your mom in Mozambique and the situation in Mozambique. The rain doesn't always cooperate, and we need food. So that is a real material issue that African farmers face. Another point I want to make when it comes to the context of African farming that is relevant and timely right now is the Ukraine-Russia situation, the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Um, Ukraine and Russia are some of the world's largest wheat producers. Many African countries buy a substantial amount of their wheat from either or both of these countries. Egypt and South Africa are a good example of this. So China has been doing something interesting when it comes to the issue of wheat. China has quietly and consistently building up an immense pile of grains in recent years, a strategic reserve, which is completely normal. Many countries build up strategic reserves in all sorts of important commodities, be they food, energy, etc. So it's believed that between 2014 and 2019, China increased its stock of wheat from 76 million metric tons to 150 million tons. At that point, it was estimated that half of the world's wheat reserves were in China. Beijing has warehoused enough wheat to meet its domestic consumption needs for a period of 18 months. That is amazing. You know, as, as an African, as somebody in Africa, I wish we had enough food to cover our domestic needs for the next half year. Things are going to get tough. The prices of urea and other fertilizers are going through the roof again because of the ongoing war situation. And this is going to affect African agriculture badly, especially our peasant agriculture, which is heavily dependent on subsidized artificial fertilizer, especially in Zambia, to grow staple foods such as maize. So with this as context, let's go a little deeper. What has China's actual relationship been to Africa in terms of agriculture, Mika? 
I mean, first of just to say that I find it really interesting that this kind of news topic was really a big, uh, well, making the rounds around 2008, 2010, 2015, 2016, even 2017, 2018, especially, I guess, 2018, there was one of the forum um, for China-Africa cooperation meetings. So it would likely have come onto the airwaves. Uh, But in the last few years, despite the fact that, you know, we've had this pandemic that has, you know, ravaged not only our ability to produce, our ability to trade, our ability to maintain sufficient and well-priced food commodities in our different African countries, we actually haven't seen a lot of, um, in my personal view, a lot of airtime being given to the question of agricultural development in the same way that those years, as I mentioned, the early 2010s were were a lot more information. But what was interesting at the time that I think still kind of is a specter haunting um, a lot of these conversations is the kind of rumors that were being disseminated as truths around Chinese farming investment and agricultural uh, activities in Africa. I mean, uh, the director of the China Africa Research Institute at John Hopkins University uh, the director of the center that does really detailed data analysis, Deborah Brautism, uh, wrote a book in 2015 saying, Will Africa Feed China? And she basically explores the scale and scope of Chinese farming and agricultural activities and investments in Africa. And she does this because a lot of the dominant narratives around the time were blatantly untrue and had very little fact, but were taking up a lot of the kind of media... Uh, discussions. And I, I want to name uh, a couple of them that she basically debunks and maybe give a little bit of context to one of them. But the following were the big myths in the moment. Namely, one, that the Chinese have acquired large areas of farmland and was basically talking about land grabs, neo-colonial stealing and theft of property, uh, and basically in large, large numbers. Then two was that the Chinese government is leading this effort through, you know, state owned firms and the kind of sovereign wealth fund. So essentially being like trying to push the colonialism narrative by saying that, you know, this is the state it's not even private companies. Three, that Chinese are growing grain for export to China exclusively. And four, that the Chinese have sent or plan to send, uh, this was at the time, large number of Chinese farmers to settle on the continent. And at the time, the number that was going around was one million Chinese farmers have been sent to occupy African farmlands and and cultivate on African farmlands. And so if we just think about the first one, about the Chinese having acquired large areas of farmland in Africa, um, the institute she works for, as well as in her book, outlines very clearly that you can trace these stories to like specific articles and specific newspapers that simply didn't report the fact or contorted the facts uh, in if if it was even closest to the truth. But what she found was that out of over 6 million hectares of alleged Chinese land acquisition, only 250,000 hectares of land had actually been acquired. Um, so that's about the size of Mauritius, which for those who don't know, it's a small island in the Indian Ocean off the east coast of Africa. And Africa is huge. Yeah, if you think of the proportion, anyone who has a vague familiarity with the African map knows that it's a tiny little piece compared to saying 6 million hectares. I mean, that would be, my math is not so good, but it would be at least 30 Mauritiuses. So, and what was also found was that even uh, if you looked on a case-by-case basis, Cameroon actually accounted for 41% of all those land acquisitions, which was largely driven by two large 
uh, purchases of existing rubber plantations. One was around 40,000, or each was around 40,000 hectares in 2008, 2010. So it's like even the actual, if we're going to identify the problem, let's be clear that uh, Cameroon was one of the the countries accounting for the majority of those alleged land acquisitions. And lastly, I think what, what some of these agricultural fictions, why they're allowed to continue as they do is because they also don't stand in context to what is also happening in terms of other um, big landowners on the continent. I mean, for example, a 2019 study on transnational land investments basically found that in 2016, Feronia, which is a Canadian company, um, they allegedly had legal control of around 117,000 hectares of land in the DRC. And so this is just one company owning almost half of what China was owning at the time. So if we were able to map the ownership patterns, I think that would give us as Africans a better understanding and a, a fighting chance as to how we deal with our own land question. Totally. And that also kind of reminds me about the differences between reporting on land ownership when you're looking at who are some of the biggest landowners in the world. So, for example, Nicole Kidman's family are amongst the largest landowners in the world. They own vast swathes of Australia. Nobody condemns that family for owning this much land, but, you know... When China invests in African agriculture, that is a problem. All right. Well, there's also um, a historical context when it comes to China-Africa agricultural cooperation. And that is the fact that ever since the late 1950s, China has been giving agricultural aid to Africa. And this still remains an essential part of contemporary Chinese development projects and aid to the continent. So they structure this a little bit different. Things have changed over the last five to six decades. And one of the biggest changes in China-Africa agricultural co um, cooperation has been the introduction of so-called agricultural technology demonstration centers. That is a mouthful. Let's call them ATDCs, right? Again, ATDC sounds like something from Star Wars, but okay. So agricultural uh, demonstration centers. There are currently 24 on the continent. And uh, some of them have been flagship projects of Chinese cutting-edge contemporary agriculture practices and methods in Africa. And there's really a key focus here, an institutional focus, on transforming Chinese aid to from material aid to very productive, very focused kind of you know, teach a man to fish sort of programs. And of course, this combines both diplomatic and commercial goals and involves a, a whole diverse cast of public and private actors. And sometimes executing this is pretty complex, as you would imagine. I know of one we have here in Lusaka, in Zambia, near the airport. Um, one of their flagship projects was actually the growing of pearl button mushrooms, you know, which are often used in Chinese cuisine. But they're also a really, really excellent source of protein, and they're very tasty. And, you know, these sort of mushrooms, mushrooms used to cost mm -hmm. you a lot of money. But when this project started and, you know, showed that you could successfully grow these mushrooms in the Zambian climate, prices dropped, you know, and this diversified the food options on the local market. And I want to stress 
this was focused on the local market. This wasn't about exporting, growing this food and then exporting it to China or elsewhere. This was purely about developing this for the local market. At least that's my understanding. And I mean, just to jump in on that, I, I think also um, we are, there are some studies out there, but there is varying effect of successes of these um, ATDCs. Because as you mentioned, there's a researcher who looked into this question of the success of these centers. And part of it, many felt was it depended on who was running it. It depended on the local conditions, the local market. So this is just to point out that there's no kind of heterogeneous approach and model that necessarily is more successful than anywhere else. Totally. Because for example, in Mozambique, they've seen at, at the at one of the farms there, which I think is in Shai Shai, uh, which is on the just north of Maputo, close to the coast, they do have a demonstration center that I think has shown real success in terms of rice production, where I think um, the yields they were producing was six times the national average. So it definitely is like a success story, but it was still a relatively small um, land uh, la- land space or size of land. And I think that is not something that is unique to Chinese-initiated, sponsored, or funded projects. We have similar challenges with some of our local research institutes and universities. There's excellent research being done, for example, at the University of Zambia. They even have a technology transfer center. But not all of these solutions are actually commercialized, popularized, and brought to the people for a variety of reasons. So indeed, how you manage it, how you manage the technology transfer, the popularization, this all matters. I mean, they are Western-backed agricultural projects that have done good work in Africa that have, for one reason or another, failed to deliver or to have a long-term impact. So I think we also need to be realistic about the issue of just generally the management of projects on the continent and the importance of coming up with not just homegrown solutions, but solutions that can be accepted by local society and also investing in making sure that people are educated, that these new solutions are there and pushing for mass adoption of these sort of projects. I mean, you know, they've just to go back to the ATDCs, um, as much as there have been successes and challenges, you know, there are some interesting things they have tackled. You know, they have tackled pretty much everything from, you know, can we raise silkworms in Africa? You know, can we raise mushrooms? Um, can we improve grains? You know, so as of 2020, before COVID, that is, uh, Development Reimagined, which is an awesome um, consultancy that focuses on China-Africa questions and approaches them, in my opinion, very rationally and very objectively, um, found that um, there are real limitations, as you said, you know, in terms of how are actual benefits reaped? You know, what are the terms and conditions of these projects? Uh, how is value added? Um, who owns the IP and the methodologies developed here? And, you know, in many cases, um, these centers are primarily Chinese-owned, which is generally the case on the continent. And I think there is room for uh, creating better cooperation with uh, respective local African countries, provinces, and cities in order to actually get this information and these skills out there. I think it's always an issue of communication when it comes down to it. 
Sure. And I mean, even um, how Development Reimagined analyzes the success of these ATDCs, um, they have a criticism of the so-called theory of change, uh, which basically believes that, you know, if you put the right conditions in place or if you have the right amount of expertise, um, then things will change around it naturally because there's an investment and an interest in the development there and that will naturally, you know, increase yields. But even if you increase yields, this doesn't really account for the fact that uh, it doesn't translate into um, where the farmer goes to market. And so you don't necessarily see, farmers don't necessarily see the returns, even though they're having increasing yields. And so their criticism is that, or, or part of what they push in even their kind of commercial work is that there needs to be some form of value adding in the process. Because once we have a bit of value adding, so, you know, if you have a, you know, cacao farm and you're able to then um, manufacture or, or produce a, 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 a processed product, then you add value and therefore you're not only creating additional jobs, but you're also actually um, adding value to the supply chain as in the theory of economics, which I'm no economic theorist or, or, or expert, but that's how I understand it. And I think that's a valid one because uh, we then aren't taking the holistic system into account. But uh, I think right now, actually, last year, there was a lot of agreements signed for African agricultural products to go to China. So basically enabling the conditions of the exportation and things like that to be more uh, amenable to different African products. So we have seen a rise in some finished products um, or some value-added agricultural products. So, I mean, yes, we've had a lot of, and we would like to explore this in greater detail, the relationship between China and African agricultural activities and exchanges, cooperations, what has worked, what hasn't worked. But one thing that is important to for us, at least, or for, for my personal interest, is the fact that at the end of the day, China feeds 20% of the world's population on only 9% of the world's arable land. Um, and they have a huge uh, amount of uh you know, a rural population, despite recent years seeing more urbanization. So trying to understand how they have done it, it, it is really, I think, a, a point of interest for not only Africans, but for countries across the world who are clearly have a lot of natural endowment in the land, but aren't necessarily um, working at the productive levels that are able to not only feed their people, but also uh, sustain the environment that is at the end of the day, has limited resources. So, I mean, just to just to kind of show the contrast uh, with uh, China between seventy eight and two thousand and nine, which was the what they call the opening up period or the period of reform that started in seventy nine, China's agriculture grew at an average rate of four point five percent, and so it was agriculture was growing at a higher uh, space uh, than the actual population growth, which basically enabled China to feed their population on this limited, you know, arable land and with uh, water resources resources that are equivalent to twenty five percent of the the average, the world average. So I think it's an interesting country to look at and see how they did it. And you know, I mentioned the Mozambican 
um, development center, agricultural uh, technological development center, which part of the reason they've had such high yield outputs has been because of the kind of technological developments coming from the Chinese agricultural experts. And it was namely around a hybrid form of rice, which was actually pioneered by, he's called the father of hybrid rice, Yuan Longping, who passed away last year, actually, and whose work contributed really like impressively to the struggle against global hunger, um, where 16 grain pilot programs have been operational in Africa. And we've seen countries like Madagascar, whose seed technology and the kind of innovative methods they adopted through the hybrid rice uh, agricultural processes, basically it kind of tripled the the hectares of yields uh, or tons per hectare between 2006 and 2019. And China's also trained at least 14,000 agricultural technicians um, in 80 developing countries. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to learn. We hope we can dig into it with some guests. We hope we can dig into it with further discussions because ultimately, as Amadeus mentioned from the start, we have a continent that is extremely hungry. We have you know, ongoing uh, geopolitical as well as regional conflicts that are uh, contributing to a hunger crisis, despite the fact that we have an extremely rich and diverse continent that should be able to feed not only our our own um, consumer needs, but those of other countries around the world. And I think on that note, we end today's podcast. It's been very interesting, even for me, to learn about this and to listen to you explain some of these things, like about the father of hybrid rice, and rice is a very, very important staple food throughout Africa. And whatever we can do to increase our yields, um, to enrich our foods, we must do. It's, it's almost to me like a moral imperative to fix agriculture and to get our people fed. So thank you very much for listening to The Crane. Tune in next time. Bye-bye. And if you want to know more about what's happening in China and a little bit more about the China-Africa relationship that we've been trying to explore, you can go on to Dongsheng News Collective or dongshengnews.org where the Dongsheng News Collective basically creates various materials such as the Media Digest, such as selected essays that we call Voices from China, where we try to give a bit of a, a more um, empirical view of what the landscape in China is from national politics to uh, geopolitics to people's culture, agriculture and environment. So you can subscribe if you go and visit our website and get a lot of this material that's super helpful and I think uh, gives a lot of the facts without all the biases informed by different groups' uh, own personal and political interests. So check us out on dongshennews.org. All our details and links are in the description of this podcast.